We're going to continue our study in uh, the attributes of God. We're in chapter 25. Let me open with a word of prayer first, and then we'll jump into the material. Father, we ask once again that you would help us as we consider who you are, what you've done specifically. God, we ask that you would please turn our hearts and our minds toward you. And we pray that you would take these various manifestations of your faithfulness and and even things that we have heard many times before, would you drive them home into our hearts that we would once again stand in awe of who you are, of what you've done, and especially your um, great and wonderful salvation that you've given us in Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you for giving us a Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, two chapters ago, we began by considering the simple truth that God is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 refers to our God as simply the faithful God. And whenever you're reading through Deuteronomy... I would imagine that when you get to Deuteronomy 7, 9 and you read the faithful God, you're not confused about who's being spoken of there. You know that when it says the faithful God, that's the God of this book, the God of the Bible, the the only living and true God. God is faithful, meaning that He is worthy of our faith. Everything about Him, everything that He is, is worthy of our trust, makes Him worthy of our trust. I don't like to use the phrase makes Him, but because of who He is, we look at that and we see He's worthy of all of our trust, all of our faith, and we even said last week that God is worth more trust and worthy of more faith than we will ever actually be able to put in Him. And especially as we struggle in this world to... to put aside or put away unbelief, we realize He's, he's worth far more than we, we really place in Him. But He is the faithful God. Last week we considered what is our response to the faithfulness of God. We saw three things. If God is faithful, what should we do? How should we live? Well, we should trust in Him, just broadly. Confess that we trust Him and then live in light of that confession. Secondly, we should trust His wisdom and direction, particularly with regard to our lives. If God is in fact faithful, then why would we ever take even one facet of our lives and say, well, I I won't trust God with this part. I won't go to God's word with regard to that matter, just everything else. Well, what you're saying is, I don't believe He's worthy of my trust there. But the fact of the matter is, He is worthy of our trust. And so we should trust His wisdom and direction for our lives. And then thirdly, how should we respond? We should proclaim God's faithfulness. We should be ready willing and able at a moment's notice to declare or proclaim God's faithfulness. If you're like me, you go out in public anywhere pretty much with a a gaggle of kids, somebody's going to walk up and say something. We're we're just waiting for people to walk up and talk. Well, that's an occasion when, when they make comments about the size of your family or whatever. That's an occasion to say, God has been very faithful to us. God has been very good to us. God has blessed us. So use those occasions to at least make simple statements like that, if not even go further and proclaim His faithfulness in the gospel itself. So then, we come to chapter 25, which is entitled, Manifestations of God's Faithfulness. Now last week, I said that ultimately both books of Revelation whether it be general revelation in what has been made or special revelation in Scripture, all of it declares the faithfulness of God everywhere we look. Well, here now we're going to look at four particular points or four particular places where we see God's faithfulness. So I'll, I'll begin reading with the opening paragraph there. He says, In the Scriptures are found abundant evidences of God's faithfulness to His people. If they were recorded in detail, even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And that's a quote from John 21, 25. However, we will limit ourselves in this chapter to a brief mention of just four manifestations or proofs of the faithfulness of God. Number one, God's covenants. Number two, God's word. Number three, God's works. And number four, the coming of God's Son. So that's going to be our... 
our structure, those four points. So the first thing that we see is the covenants of God. The covenants of God. If you've been around here very long, you've probably heard somebody talk about the covenants of God or covenant theology. Um, that's, that's what we're talking about here, but in a, in a more broad sense. He begins by explaining this word covenant. <clears throat> the English word covenant is derived from the Latin verb convenir or convenire, which is made up of two other uh, roots, com, which means together, and venir, which means to come. You've probably heard the term convene. Everybody's going to convene at a particular place. That means come together. Well, that, our English word covenant comes from the same Latin root, to come together. Now, in the Scriptures, he says, the word covenant comes from the Hebrew word berit in the Old Testament and the Greek word diatheke in the New Testament. When the Bible speaks of the covenants between God and His people, it refers to the promises that God has made to His people, commitments that He has obligated Himself to fulfill without fail. Now, if we wanted to go a step further, we would point out that in Scripture we see two different kinds of covenants. Sometimes there are what we would call covenants of works, requiring or, or giving some stipulation to man that he must fulfill in order for God to fulfill his side of the covenant. And we also see what we call the covenant of grace, where God takes upon himself all of the stipulations and, and mediates the covenant to us in pure grace. In both of those, God is faithful. A covenant of works, you obey, God blesses. You disobey, God curses. For God to bring a curse, to, to, to pour out the judgment that He promised or He threatened, well, that's still faithfulness. He was still faithful to what He said He would do. So we've got to keep that in mind that even though the outcome is not always positive, that's still a revelation of God's faithfulness. So the first text is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. You can turn there with me. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. It was not, this is Moses, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Now I'm going to keep reading. And repays to their face those who hate Him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates Him. He will repay Him to His face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Clearly the language of a conditional type of covenant of works. Now, if God brought about the judgment, if He repaid them to their face who hate Him, would we say, well, I guess He wasn't faithful? No, we would say He was exactly faithful. He did exactly what He said He was going to do. But there we see God's covenant faithfulness Illustrated. Now he says, summarize the truths. What, what do we see here? Well, he says clearly, it was not for anything in them that God came and, and made this covenant with them. He says that it was actually because of God's love, His steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness to them, and, and the oath that He made to their forefathers. In other words, God's covenant with this people was ultimately rooted in God Himself. God, God loved. God made an oath. Therefore, God is keeping and continuing this covenant with His people. God is central, in other words. He's at the center. Now, what can we take from that as application? Well, we serve the same God. That, that God speaking there is the same God we serve today. We who are of faith are actually of the same spiritual line and, and covenantal line in, in a sense that Abraham was in. And therefore, we have every confidence in God's promises. What does, let me read to you from Galatians. You know these, these texts well. Galatians 3, 7. Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 9. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham would be considered one of the patriarchs, the fathers that God swore oath to. Well, here we are. You have faith. Do, do, are you trusting in the Lord? Is, he, is Christ your Savior? Well, that's a testimony to the covenant faithfulness of God. We can rest confident in God's promises, even though a lot of time has passed since God dealt with Abraham. He's still faithful. God hasn't changed. The note there at the bottom of the page says that God's salvation and kind dealings with Israel were the result of the promises that He made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3 and the other patriarchs. The fact that God was still fulfilling His promises even after hundreds of years and in spite of His people's unfaithfulness is a great demonstration of His faithfulness. God remains faithful to Himself and His oaths, His covenants that He has made. The second passage is 1 Kings chapter 8. Turn there. First Kings chapter 8. Solomon is praying a prayer of dedication at the temple. In verses 23 and 24, he describes God in his prayer. First uh, Kings 8. 23 and 24. Let me begin at verse 22 just to get a complete sentence. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. So again, what do we see? Well, Solomon points out the exclusivity of God in this regard. There's no God like this God that makes covenants, that makes promises, and keeps them. He's exclusive. He keeps covenant. He shows love to His people and he, he makes specific reference there to the covenant that He made with David, the Davidic covenant. He says, you spoke it and you fulfilled it. Solomon could stand there at the dedication of the temple as the king who followed David's line. He said, you fulfilled your promise. You spoke it and you declared it. I'll, I'll read the note there again. It says, although Solomon is referring specifically to the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17, the same can be said of all of God's dealings with men. In all things, He has shown Himself to be a God of His Word. He has not given us one reason to doubt that He will remain faithful until the end. So again, how, how would this apply to us? Or what is the impact that it should have on our lives? Again, we should be confident. But especially in a world of turmoil, we should be a serene and peaceful people. God is faithful. God will do what He said He's going to do. God will bring to pass His purposes. Our God is known in particular as the God who makes and keeps covenants. We have nothing to fear. Whatsoever. The next text is Isaiah 54.10. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10. Here the questions are, how enduring is the, is the covenant faithfulness of God? Is there any possibility that God will ever renege, default on, or fail to honor the promises that He has made. Look at Isaiah 54.10. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So, to answer the question, is there any possibility that God will renege, default on, or fail? No, there's no possibility that that would happen. Now think about it. and Look at the illustration that he uses. The mountains may depart. The hills may be removed. I mean, how often have we ever doubted that the hills or the mountains are going to hold us up? How many times have you ever driven towards Asheville or Boone and you're going up the mountains and you start to get a little nervous? 
Well, I, I, I sure hope this mountain holds our car up. You don't do that. You're, you're convinced. It doesn't even cross your mind that the mountains would not continue. Well, that is just a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Who's upholding the mountains? God is. Now, here's, here's where we could get to the root of the matter. We don't doubt the mountains and hills because we can see them. And very often we do doubt God because we can't see Him. So the issue is ultimately comes back to an issue of faith. We're not believing what God has said. We don't believe His promises. And so if that's you, you need to pray for a strengthening of your faith and then exercise that faith so that it can be strengthened. Remember, faith is like a muscle. The more that we use it, the stronger it becomes. The next passage is Jeremiah 31 and 33. So we'll begin there in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37. Now, I don't know if, if, you, if you write or highlight in your Bibles, for me, verses 31 to 34, I already have highlighted because that is a very important passage for us. It is the passage that is descriptive of the new covenant and 31 to 34. So following, coming out of that 35 to 37, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If this, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. There's that text. Now flip over a page or two to chapter 33, verses 20 to 21. Very similar language. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. And my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Now again, in both of these passages, natural revelation is given as a testimony or to bear witness to special revelation, God's covenant promises. And again, we, what we should take away from this is the unrelenting consistency of the created order itself is a product of God's covenant faithfulness. He's, he's saying things like the day and the night, and if, if that ever changes, then my covenant would fail. Well, why is it that day and night continue? Well, it's because God made a covenant. Now, I'll, we, we referenced it, but I'll, I'll read it again for you from Genesis 8. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We forget that the, the, the most consistent and steadfast things in our world, day and night, the, the seasons, we forget that is because of a covenant that those things remain. Now some people might look at the sheer magnitude of, of the, the promises that we would say uh, constitute the new covenant. And they might wonder if all that God has said in, in, these, in these new covenant promises can really be true. I mean... We think of just one individual with a, a multitude of sins, and yet the promises of the new covenant are that all of the iniquities of all of God's people are going to be laid upon God's Son. God would pour out His judgment upon Christ on the cross, and that all of those iniquities would be taken away, removed as if they had never been committed at all. Now that's for one sinner, the magnitude of that is beyond our comprehension. But somebody might come along and say, what you're telling me is that a, a, the promise of the new covenant is that one, one figure is going to do that for this innumerable host of sinners and that's going to, to carry them through into eternity. They would say the sheer magnitude of that just makes it kind of hard to believe. Well, if we go back to what Jeremiah said, 
In Jeremiah 31, 37, if the heavens can be measured, the foundation of the earth can be explored, then I will cast off the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. In other words, he's pointing out there, you, you can't even survey the created world. So why would you find it strange that God would make a covenant with His people that's of a magnitude you can't comprehend? Do, do you doubt that there is a heavens? Do you doubt that there is an earth? Do you doubt that there is a sea? Even though you have not explored them all, you don't doubt. You don't say, well, I've, I've not surveyed every inch of the planet. I, I'm really not sure if it exists. No, the, you don't doubt that even though that's of that magnitude and yet God's covenant promises are far greater in magnitude. That, that's not a reason to doubt. And the earth itself is upheld by the covenant word of God's power. So again, God's covenants show His faithfulness. And going back to ideas like covenant theology, the study of covenant theology is, is about far more than knowing who should and shouldn't be baptized. And that's a part of it. But when you get into a detailed study of covenant theology, what it does is it bolsters your confidence in the Word of God and the God of the Word. It, 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 it makes the Word of God come alive in ways that you, you've probably never even noticed before. God's covenants are a testimony to His faithfulness or manifestations of His faithfulness. The next heading is the Word of God. The Word of God is a testimony to God's faithfulness. He says, The Word of God, that is His promises and all that He's decreed, is another great proof of the great or of the faithfulness of God. Not one word of all the words that the Lord has spoken has ever failed. God is faithful to fulfill every promise and to carry out every decree. His word is faithful and worthy of our absolute, absolute trust because He is faithful, righteous, holy, and immutable. So let's turn to Joshua 23, 14. Joshua 23, 14, he says... And now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Now, this is Joshua testifying to this truth. But he also calls upon the entire assembly. He basically calls them to testify. You know in your heart and soul, you've seen it. Not one word that God has given has failed. Not one promise has fallen through. Not one word. Now how, does this, how can we make use of this? Or as he says, how can this truth be applied to the believer's life today? Well again, we serve the same God as Joshua served. We are followers of the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ the Lord. But we also can personally testify to God's promises. And like Joshua, we have the, uh, we have the great benefit of being able to call upon other saints to also bear witness, to be in the midst of an assembly where we hear other saints testify to God's faithfulness. So we, we, we live in and breathe the atmosphere of the verbalizing and testimony of God's faithfulness. That's a means of grace to us. When we're struggling to see God's faithfulness, it's a means of grace to hear five other believers saying, God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will be faithful. Now think about how strong and dangerous is the sin of unbelief. That though we see all this, Though we have His Word, we read His Word, we hear of others around us testifying to the faithfulness of God, and yet, we still drift into doubt. We still drift into unbelief. Against all sense, reason, and experience, we doubt. It doesn't make any sense to what we've experienced. It doesn't make any sense to God's Word. It doesn't make any sense to history. It doesn't make any sense to any uh, of the saints from the beginning of the world till now to say, well, God's not really quite that faithful. No, that's utterly irrational. And yet, in our minds, very often, we doubt, we wonder. 
That's evidence that the, that the, the sin of unbelief, it's not just a, it's not a light thing. It's a great, dangerous blemish of the soul that can only be healed by supernatural power. You must cry out to God. It requires supernatural intervention to deal with the sin of unbelief. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. First Kings eight, verse fifty six. Solomon again. Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses. His servant. Again, we see that language. Not one word had failed in Solomon's day. Not one word had failed. Now, how can that be applied to the life of the believer today? Well, we can now say, still, not one word has failed. Therefore, not one word can or will ever fail. Another application... What, what is going to be one of the greatest uh, exercises to strengthen our faith? Time in the Word. The Word does not fail. So the more often we are in the Word of God, the more clearly we see God's faithfulness to us. Turn with me to Psalm 119, verses 89 and 90. Psalm 119, verses 89 and 90. Forever, O Lord, Your Word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. Now notice it addresses God's Word. Your Word is firmly fixed. Where? In the heavens. And many things could be said about what that means, but I think we could take away at least this, that something that is fixed in the heavens it remains unaltered by the changing circumstances of things below heaven. God's Word is fixed in the heavens. We, we live in a, in, a, in a constantly changing society, a constantly changing world. Well, God's Word is not fixed in the world. It doesn't have its, its source here. It's fixed in the heavens. Therefore, it doesn't change. Again, and he calls upon natural or general revelation to declare this truth. He concludes that statement by saying, you have established the earth. And it stands fast. The earth is not going anywhere. Again, if the earth is, is that secure to us, well, think about something that is established in the heavens, even more secure, even more firm. Environmentalists and Mother Earth worshipers want you to believe that God is not in control of the earth. That we, we might slip up to the point where we just mess the whole thing up. Listen, we need to be good stewards of what we have, but this world is not going to last a day longer than the day that God has appointed for it to be cleansed by fire. And it's not, nothing's going to happen to it until that moment when it is time for it to be cleansed with fire. God is in control of the earth, it's fixed. And if the world is fixed, how much more His Word which is fixed in the heavens. The next passage is Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8. He says one of the most important truths to be emphasized about God's Word is its immutability. God's Word endures forever without change. What do the following texts teach us about this truth and what impact should this truth have upon our lives? Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Now if the, if the, the grass and the flower are, are to be likened to people, then we can see here 
that though men change and even die, though men come along in successive generations all the time, there, there are clocks on the internet you can get that just, that'll show you every, every time somebody dies and probably every time somebody is born. I only know about the one, who, the, the one with, that counts when people die. I just thought that was interesting. But it doesn't stop. Just dead, 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 dead. People are coming and going. The generations of, of the human race are constantly coming in and leaving all the time. Men, that, that's us, like grass, like flowers. But the Word of God, it's not like men. It's not like that. It's not the product of man. And so it's not like men. Men come and go, but God's Word remains. God's Word does not change with the times. It doesn't change with the successive generations. It doesn't change with the experience or feelings of a single person or a small group of people that can come along and say, well, we think it actually means this now. No, it, it means what it's always meant. God's Word doesn't change. It's a testimony to His faithfulness. Turn to Matthew 5, verse 18, where we see our Lord testify to this same truth. Matthew 5, 18, let me read, I'll read 17 to 19 to get the whole, the whole statement. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. Christ says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an Iota, that's how you pronounce that word, Iota. I know we, we say not one iota, that's fine, but the word is Iota, not an Iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What do we see here? This is an astonishing thing because when Christ began to preach, there was the tendency to imagine that maybe He's bringing something brand new. What we see here is that not even the coming of Christ into the world incarnate, God the Son incarnate, not even His coming or His teaching rendered any actual change or alteration to God's Word, God's law. Rather, the coming of Christ was just another testimony to His faithfulness. It was merely what God had promised all along as, as He goes on to open up and unpack these particular laws. What He's saying is, I'm not saying anything new. I'm saying you guys had it wrong. And He bears witness to God's faithfulness. God's Word remained unchanged even as Christ began to minister. So then what can we learn from this? Well, this is what came to my mind. Reading God's Word even the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, with Christ in view, trying to see how all things point to Christ, that doesn't present a hindrance or, or confusion to the matter of God's Word. That, that's, not a, that, that's not an extra thing that all of a sudden it makes God's Word hard to navigate. No, reading the Scriptures with a view to see Christ is what adds clarity. It's what gives the life to them. It's precisely the lens that we should have on if we want to see God's faithfulness most clearly. Look for the promises concerning Christ. Look for the types that point to Christ. And then what do we see? Christ comes and He says, Nothing's changed. I am the fulfillment of everything that has ever been said. On and on we could go with, with God's Word. The point being God's Word is a testimony or a manifestation of His faithfulness. Third heading, the works of God. The works of God. He says, it's often said that one's works verify or annul the faithfulness of one's words. When we apply this proverb to God, we find that His faithfulness is absolutely perfect. As Moses declares in Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, His work is perfect. So let's look at Psalm 33 and verse 4 together. God's works are a manifestation of His faithfulness. 
Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all His work is done in faithfulness. So there we see it very clearly, simply, straightforward. All of God's work is done in faithfulness. There is no work of God where we cannot see something of His faithfulness. So how should, how should we apply that? Well, I think at least this, we should live with our eyes open to see and search out and discover more and greater works of God in order to see more manifestations of His faithfulness, to see it more clearly. The note says it's important to recognize the relationship between God's Word and His works. There is no discrepancy or variation between the two. Even among men of integrity, there can be a difference between what a man says or promises and what he is actually able to perform. But God is both able and faithful to do all that He has promised. God's Word and God's works always coincide. You'll never find a difference. The next passage is Isaiah 25 verse 1. So turn there with me, Isaiah 25 verse 1. We read, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name. For You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. So again, we see God's works. You've done wonderful things. God's works show that God is faithful. But what is He faithful to? Plans formed from of old. Whose plans? God's plans. God is faithful to His plans. What He has decreed to happen, He performs. And they're all faithful and sure. So, how could we make use of this? Well, don't let mortal men, with all of their guessing and planning, be the foundation of your worldview. Or even your daily activities and actions. Draw near to God, the one who planned all things from of old. Know Him. Seek His kingdom. You will be fine. God is faithful. God's plans, they come to pass. They will be. Man's plans, man's guessings, man's pontifications and, and, and you know drawing boards and all of that. Well, who knows? God's plans are always sure. Psalm 138, verse 8. Turn there with me. Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Now here David is speaking, but now he's speaking very specifically. He will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The work there is David, the individual believer. So as we saw this morning, God has purposes for all of His people. You, as an individual believer, you are a manifestation of God's faithfulness. A walking, talking, living, breathing testimony to the faithfulness of God. God's purposes for us, we see in this verse, come to us from the fountain of His steadfast love. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. And that's why He goes on, and ask that He not be forsaken. Now, how might we uh, apply this or what can we learn from this? Well, this is one thing that I like to do, especially in the Psalms, is learn about prayer. David is teaching us how to pray in, this, in, in just this one verse. He says, The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. So, where, where does he begin? By knowing, believing, and affirming God's Word and God's promise. Start there. Then he says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So he knows, he believes, he affirms God's Word. Then he uses God's Word as leverage in his prayer. God, you said this. 
Therefore, do this. And that's how we can pray. God must be faithful to His Word. That's how you get prayers answered, is praying using God's own Word as leverage. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. This is sort of the, the New Testament version of that same verse, Paul's, Paul's version. Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Not before the day, at the day. That's where we we have the promise. At the day, it will be brought to completion. What do we see here? Well, God is the one who began the work of salvation, not us. God begins a work. We've already seen all of God's works are works of faithfulness. Therefore, any work of salvation that God has begun, He must bring it through to completion. And so we can live with the same confidence that the Apostle Paul had for ourselves. God will bring the work to completion. For others that we know, God will bring the work to completion in them. For churches, God will bring the work to completion. As Paul there is addressing the Philippians as a congregation. God will bring the work to completion. All of God's works will be brought to their conclusion. Turn over now to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We see here that God Himself is attending every part of your salvation. As He mentions there, the, the whole spirit, soul, and body. He's, he's, he's summing up all of man as He is. God will finish the work in the whole of man. He will surely do it. He will bring the sanctifying work to completion. Now, what does that do? That gives us hope for today. It gives us hope for tomorrow. It gives us hope for all of life. It gives us hope for the final day. God will bring it through. I, I can, If I know God is bringing the work to completion at the final day, then I can say, well, today, this, this very day, even though I might not feel like I, I, I leapt seven steps ahead in my sanctification, I might not feel that when I go home, but I do know God's bringing the work to completion. And it, it might take me years down the road to look back and see the growth, but God's bringing the work to completion. He's not stopped. He never stops. And even especially on the final day, think about it. The judge is not going to cast off his own workmanship. It's his work. So we're going to stand before the one who saved us and who promised to bring the work to completion that we would be found blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. He's the one who's doing it. That's the one we're going to answer to. He will not cast out his own work. Remember... Ephesians 2.10 For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You did not make yourself a Christian. You are God's workmanship. You are a new creature, a new creation created by God. All of God's works serve to display His faithfulness. So, so God can't not finish the work. He must. By His own very nature, He is required to do that. So the little buds of grace that we see in ourselves and that we see in others will flower in eternity. God is faithful. He will do it. We must trust that He will. So God's works manifest His faithfulness. And then lastly, the coming of God's Son manifests His faithfulness. He says the great demonstration or the greatest demonstration or proof of God's faithfulness is seen in the coming of His only Son, 
From the very first chapters of the Scriptures, we find promises of His coming and the salvation He would bring. After thousands of years, all these promises were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To answer the question, is God faithful? We only need to look to His Son and what He did for us on Calvary. So let's turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. We'll see how Mary and Zechariah interpreted the events of their lives. Luke chapter 1, 46 to 55, he says, is recorded what is commonly called the Magnificat, or the prayer of Mary, the mother of Jesus. According to verses 46 and 47 and 54 and 55, how has the coming of the Messiah, that is Christ, Proved God's faithfulness. Well, let's read there, verses 46 and 47. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then verses 54 and 55 to conclude, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. Who are Abraham's offspring? We've already seen Spiritually, it's those who are of the faith of Abraham. Mary comes to a realization of, of what is happening, or at least verbalizes what, she's, what, what the Lord is revealing to her. And the first place she goes is the Lord and His salvation. My soul magnifies the Lord. She goes straight to Him. Her attention is straight to God. God, my Savior, she says. She, she takes notice of what is happening in her womb. And her thought is, God has remembered His promises. God's remembering the promises that He made of, of mercy and salvation. Mary saw the child in her womb as God's promise fulfilled. In the Son born to Mary, God's promises of mercy, salvation, and deliverance to Abraham, his offspring, and Israel were fulfilled. That's the way she saw it. She felt her womb. She'd feel her baby kicking. She said, God's, God's fulfilling His promises to the nation of Israel. God's fulfilling the promises to the patriarchs. That's the way she saw her situation. Now, in verses 68 to 75, we have Zechariah. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who gives a, uh, a prophecy. The first half of it dealing with Christ, and then the second half dealing with his own son, that we know as John the Baptist. Listen to verses 68 to 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. What does Zechariah, what does is, what is the Spirit Produce. You see, we didn't read verse 67. He was feared with the, filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. What, what is the Holy Spirit given to Zechariah? What is it that he, he sees? Well, the coming of the Christ was what was foretold by all of the prophets concerning the coming salvation. It was the Christ who was that mercy promised to the fathers. Christ was the covenant and oath sworn to Abraham. That's what he's saying. In, in the coming of the Christ... Even as he's in the womb of his mother, these two are able to see God is fulfilling his promises. Turn to Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For I tell you, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that would be Jewish people, 
to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And, number two, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And he goes on and articulates these other prophecies from the Old Testament that relate to the Gentiles. And so what, what do we see here? Christ, The coming of Christ, He comes to His own people first. He comes to the Jews first. Why? As a confirmation of the promises that were made about Him of their own deliverance. But also as a fulfillment of many Old Testament passages concerning the Gentile nations. One may have wondered, how is it that God is going to bring deliverance and salvation to Jew and Gentile, and Gentiles are going to be brought in with Jews? Many prophecies that we read in Scripture, if there's no Christ, we're left scratching our heads. Like the Jews of Paul's day, whenever they read the Old Covenant, a veil is over their eyes. Why? Because they, they, the only way to remove the veil is to see Christ as the fulfillment. He says in the note there, the word confirmed comes from the Greek word bibao, which means to confirm, secure, or establish. The sending of God's Son confirmed all the promises that He made to His people Israel. In verses 9-11, through 11, Paul makes reference to the Gentiles. Notice that Paul quotes various passages from the Old Testament where God promised to save even Gentile nations by sending His Son. God also confirmed all the promises He made regarding the nations. How, how can it all be done? Start in Genesis 3.15, go on through, through all of the Old Testament Scriptures, all of the prophets. How can it all be done? The answer is Christ. Christ. And then the very last passage is 2 Corinthians Chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. And the note there says, stated simply, all of God's promises to His people are confirmed and fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. All of the additional works and words of God that we have flow out of that premier promise of the skull-crushing seed of the woman. And we find that in Christ. He's come. The promises are fulfilled. So that we can be confident that eternity is sure. Eternity is sure. We need look no further than Jesus Christ. Let's pray.